0: Breaking down the stigma of pursuing mental health and making it a priority. Improving and saving lives. This episode is brought to you by Past Life. Life can change at any moment. Are you prepared? The grief a family feels upon losing loved ones is difficult enough, but the days, weeks, and months that follow are filled with stressful decisions Past Life is a single-solution, secure, cloud-based platform where funeral preparations, last wishes, will information, financial assets, business continuation information, social media account information, etc. can be uploaded to the recipients of the user's choosing. Past Life allows you to alleviate the stress and lift the fog for your loved ones, primarily by giving them a vital trove of information in multiple areas. Veterans Path podcast listeners can save 10% by using the code PATH at checkout. Learn more at pastlife.com. That's Pass-Life.com. Pass Life. Pass your loved ones a lifeline. All right. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good day. Welcome to the Veterans Path Podcast. I'm John McCaskill, your host. Today, my guest is Marine Corps Infantry Officer Veteran and former FBI Special Agent Killian Hemi. Now, as I was discussing with Killian right before the show, I'm done giving away the show in the intro. Bottom line is you're going to want to listen to what Kimmy has to say. He's got a heck of a story. And now with all that out of the way, here we go. Welcome to the show, Killian.
1: Thanks, John. Of course, right now is when I start coughing, but thanks for having <laughs> me. I really appreciate it being here.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to have a bottle of water by your, by your, uh, by your side when you do these things, oh, yeah. man. So yeah, let's lay the foundation for the show, man. Tell us a little bit about your background before you entered college and the military, and then, uh, and then we'll get into the military and everything after.
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, raised a, a kid, um, in the Midwest for the most part. Um, we moved back and forth to Australia when I was younger. Uh, my parents have a pretty interesting story. My, my old man was a surgeon in the Navy in Vietnam. Uh, my mom was, uh, country bumpkin from the middle of the Outback in Australia and uh, she went over to work with USAID as a social worker They met Da Nang um, you know war zone romance and then uh, got married had a bunch of kids and then took us back and forth to Australia pretty much my whole time growing up excuse me really yeah it was uh, it was great I lived there for a couple of years and then we went Uh, at least once every year um, to go and visit with her family Um, up until I was about 14 was the last time I was there. Wow. Um, But you know kind of a standard you know standard thing I I was the the last kid um, so I was kind of the forgotten kid.
0: uh, You said a bunch of kids okay so four. Yeah
1: yeah so at that point um, my parents were just glad that I only had a couple of run-ins with the law and um, (laughs) you know never never really did any hard times so they were pretty happy about that um you know their push was for uh I, I don't know if it was necessarily their push or my push but it was for independent so um you know i went to uh, uh a normal high school for the first 3 years and then i got kind of sick of of like the quotidian just doing the same thing over and over again so i pushed to go to uh, a school overseas ended up going to uh, an american school in switzerland For my senior year of high school, which was really, really interesting because it kind of, you know, being a kid from uh, the sort of halfway between city and country of of Milwaukee, outside of Milwaukee, um, it was interesting to see what the world looked like outside of there. Even though my worldview had been sort of opened and and my optic was uh, a little bit wider um, from my upbringing, you know, you still get the kind of stuck in in your ways with how you're raised. Um, so going over there was great. I mean, there were tons of sort of expat kids whose parents lived in Saudi, other kids from, you know, all around. You know, we had um, somebody who I think was like royalty or related to the president uh, of Kazakhstan, who knows, but uh, all I know is she had a servant that worked with her. Anyhow, it was a really interesting uh, environment. So that was, um, going into college going into college i was slightly directionless um didn't really know what i wanted to do but there was something in my head that said i wanted to go into the military um despite my parents uh, and how they met there was never any pressure on us or never any really talk at all about um war or the military or you know my dad didn't sit back and Drink beers and talk about the good old times in the Navy or anything like that. <laughs> Show us his, you know, sailor Jerry tattoos on his arm. Um, so there's none of that. Uh, my older sister or one of my older sisters ended up going to uh, West Point. Oh wow! I go and visit her there, and I, I kind of thought that that was uh, something that I'd like to do. But then, you know, I, I watched her and she kind of got like. I mean, she's, she swam there as well. So she was very, very active, but I watched her and like, as she got towards the last of her four years, like she, she was tired and that was before, you know, she pins on the gold bars and actually has to go and do stuff. Yeah. Um, so I was like, let me let me do the next best thing. And so I went down to uh, the Marine option guy at the, at the Navy ROTC place. I'm like, I want to be a Marine. He's like, that sounds good. You got to cut your hair. I'm like, I can do that. So let's start, <laughs> let's start there um so went into rotc and absolutely loved it um i did one of the non-rotc commissioning programs to start and you know that was going to officer candidate school um, for a six-week segment uh i actually really enjoyed that i i just there's something about that that resonated with me and then got to do a bunch of other sort of summer and winter trainings um and then got commissioned in in May of 2001. I mean, I I was so adamant about going into the military that, um, you know, I, I I was a student of history, but it was really because history was like, that was the major that sort of could sort of help me keep my academics to keep my scholarship so I could go into the military. So I'd love to say that I was one of those, you know, students who got a 4.0 and did all the RTC stuff, but I was all. that guy.
0: <laughs> Don't we, <laughs> exactly. we all? Exactly. <laughs> so, you graduate, you get your commission, you go to the basic school, come your infantry officer. what your Marine Corps career look like from there?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I probably like every, um, you know, young and, and immature person that wants to be commissioned or wants to go into the Marine Corps, you know, I think anybody that goes in pre nine 11 had probably aspirations of going to do, you know, fight bad guy things, but no real understanding of what that means, you know, the best that you could hope for in the Marine Corps was the idea of like going over and and dealing with some sort of, uh, you know, in extremist type situation where there's, there's a response and maybe you've got a Haiti that you have to deal with, or maybe you've got an evacuation that you have to deal with. Uh, But I remember sitting in a class um, on 9-11 and here comes, you know, one of the instructors in and says, hey, look, there's been an attack in New York. And then everybody, you know, the, as you very well remember, the the couple of days that ensue of so many questions and what comes next. Yeah. There's one certainty. And that certainty was that we were going to go and do something about that. Um, the do something was not very clearly defined. Um, but I knew that I'd known that I wanted to be an infantry officer. So I put in for that. I got it. And then once I was in infantry officers course, um, I actually switched, uh, like I traded battalions with, a uh, one of the guys because I wanted to go to the East coast because I knew that they were going to be going to Afghanistan, um, as some of the first rotations. Right. So, uh, I got to my first battalion and we got onto a, um, a weird thing that the Marine Corps did where they, they had this sort of this anti-terrorism force um, and went to Afghanistan in, uh, sort of the early parts or the, the, you know, second quarter of, uh, 2002. Um, that was, you know, it was an introduction. It wasn't exactly what I wanted to be doing. We were spent most of our time at the embassy. Um, but it was still, I think it was a good sort of awakening to look, this is a, this is a war that we're fighting now. And it's not just a series of battles like this. We're in here for a while um and still there still there (laughs) still still there uh still there I've got an eight-year-old and I'm like "Ah, I probably be there are we kidding (laughs) um yeah and then did another deployment you know went to Guantanamo Bay as part of this force afterwards and then did a real in-depth um deployment in 2004 as just an infantry battalion going over to um support OEF and John that was that was like every lieutenant's dream. I didn't have a real position um, because of the way that the Marine Corps infantry battalion is structured. You know, that war becomes a very decentralized thing. You've got smaller elements spread out. You don't have, you're not a company of Marines or a battalion of Marines fighting against a conventional force. So my battalion commander at the time was like, hey, you're going to go and you're going to find missions for us. And you know, we have this geographic area, you're gonna to go to all these FOBs uh, and all these, you know, these outposts and you're gonna tell them that you can bring however many Marines they need uh, to do their mission. So I got to travel all over Afghanistan, engage with some incredible people, do some things that were way far outside of my sort of, you know, position description. And um, and yeah, and that and that then sort of shaped what I wanted to do next. Um, because I was at that point in a junior officer's career where you have to make a decision of like, where am I gonna go next? And it's probably right. gonna be some sort of, you know, shore duty B-billet type thing. Um, and I realized that I didn't want that. So that was my my decision to get out and pursue what was gonna come next.
0: And what was that? Uh, I mean, I know what it was and I, I yeah. briefly mentioned it, but yeah,
1: how'd sure. that go? So, I was applying to um, the agency and to the FBI at the exact same time. And um, I started applying as I was uh, still in Afghanistan and I got notification from both that I was in their hiring pipeline. Nice. So fast forward and it's 2005, it's the summer of 2005 and I'm on terminal leave and um, with the uh FBI I had sort of finished everything and they're like all right well you just got to wait for a class date and that can be I mean that can be 6 weeks it can be 6 months uh could be longer um with the agency I had like one more uh series of tests that I had to do actually, I actually had to go and take my psych profile with them that was scheduled for a Monday on the Friday previously um a friend of mine from the Marine Corps who had already gotten into the FBI and had a class date was like hey dude I've got stress fractures, I called up the recruiter and I can't go starting to the class on Sunday. I'm like, good luck. Uh, you're gonna be. It's going to be like a year and this sucks. I'm sorry, man. And like five minutes later, that same recruiter called me and they're like, hey, you're living in the Northern Virginia area. Do you think maybe you could start on Sunday? I'm like, got my bags packed. I'll see you there on Sunday.
0: Good job. Good uh, job.
1: Yeah. So sorry, pal. Sorry, Greg, but you're going to have to wait, but I'll take your spot. Like, I'm scratching out his name but off the door plate and but he's only half the word as they say. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um I now granted the recruiter called me. I didn't call the recruiter John so I wasn't volunteering myself. But that's I was right. happy to take that spot. Sure. That's the um, story you tell everyone <laughs> yeah man I, I'm the one writing my history so <laughs> that's what that's about. Um yeah so I you know I I started with the FBI and um I was keen to just there's something inside of me still, you know, I still, I think, shaking off, um, coming off of a really amazing deployment, um, a lot of autonomy, and a lot of feeling like I was very much involved in um, very significant action that was, in my mind, dealing a blow to the enemy. That was, I I was actually shaping what was happening in eastern and northeastern Afghanistan. Um, and then I go into the FBI and it's like, you're, you're back at square one, you're Nick, the new guy, um, which is not a bad thing, but you know, you're Nick, the new guy, and you've got a lot of learning to do very good thing, but then you've got a lot of proving yourself that you have to do. And I think I bristled at that a little bit. Um, not necessarily out of hubris, but more so out of annoyance that it was just taking, me away from doing what i thought i could do to have an effect so i sort of struggled for my first couple of years and then um, the legal attache in uh kabul um who's the senior fbi representative working for um working at the embassy took a chance on me in the beginning of 2008 um he was actually a guy i'd met in 2004 in afghanistan when i was still a jarhead and uh and brought me over there And it was um, absolutely incredible work. I mean, we, the FBI for a very long time, um, you know, their job is to investigate crimes against non uniformed Americans overseas. And that includes, like, at that point, there were, you know, three contractors for every uniformed soldier who was in Afghanistan. So people were getting hurt, getting kidnapped, getting killed. And we had those investigations to do. you know, so I was able to go over and do the things that I really like doing. So working sources, going out with, um, you know, special operations teams and helping them do their site exploitation, helping run their sources for them, helping them put together their sort of j list. So all the things that really, truly made me feel like I had, uh, you know, again, a, a direct effect on what was happening, I felt at home there. And I just plain loved being deployed. You know, I've heard you talk about this with pretty much every single one of your guests. You know, you spend you spend all of your time as an adult training for something and and thinking about something. You know, when you're not in the game, you feel like you're really missing a lot. Right. That's how that's how I I felt like I was back in the game there. Um, So I had a, a very long deployment there um, in 2008 and had some really interesting, you know, things happen, um, lots of near misses, lots of things that sort of reinforce that feeling of invulnerability that you get when you're overseas, you know, even though you watch and have seen friends die and have seen terrible things happen to people every time that it doesn't happen to you, yep. that kind of reinforces the way that you feel like, oh, well, I guess it's going to happen to everybody but me. Um, right. So that happened um, 2008, 2009. I went back for um, two more deployments. And then on my third deployment in 2009, or my third trip over there, I uh, went out and um, I think I was maybe two or three weeks in. And it just didn't it actually didn't feel right. There was just something that felt off. Like I felt like my tempo wasn't the way that it was supposed to be. I felt like I couldn't quite get, you know, purchase for my feet underneath me, whatever sort of expression you want to use. And then um, it was I can't remember what night of the week it was. But uh, September 25th, I stayed up super late doing a bunch of paperwork for one of the cases I was working. And then the next morning I woke up, uh, I called my fiance at the time. Now my wife and um, Know it's like I think it was four in the morning when I called her. So it's lunchtime for her. And then I went for a run. And there were a bunch of Australian um SAS guys who were there. And you know, like they I think they were there protecting the Australian ambassador. They were all former current guys, um, really good guys, had known them for a couple of years on and off, and went out for a run. And these guys were all just superhuman, you know, like could bench press a Volkswagen and run a five-minute mile. And ran the first uh, like loop around the embassy with them, which is about a mile and some change, and um, turned the corner, or you know, got to the the sort of start point. I'm like, guys, I don't feel so great, so I'm just going to slow down. I'll catch you on the next loop. And so they turned the corner, and uh, I took two paces and dropped dead. Um, Literally. Faced it, yeah, face face down on the ground. And to throw some context to it, I uh won the genetic lottery um with uh this completely obscure genetic mutation in my heart that makes it so that in my right ventricle uh, pointing like you know hey look my right ventricle Um, (laughs) you know in in my right ventricle there's a spot that's kind of like the bermuda triangle so when your heart's you know beating and all these electrical impulses are moving through there this was a spot that that day all the electrical impulses went to, and they just stopped. Um, So my heart, it's not even like my heart just kind of went into a heart attack mode. It basically just stopped right there. And there was tiny little bits of electrical activity. So,
0: did you know that you had this condition prior? No. Was this this your introduction
1: to that? (laughs) This, This is my introduction to it. So I had had this is a funny thing and this is why I sometimes don't love military medicine or government medicine on every single one of my EKGs from when I was uh you know 19 years old and went to maps for the first time to every single EKG that I ever got while I was in government service there was always an anomaly like you know your 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 EKG is uh OPQRST right that's the the markers on it uh the little waves that are on it and my T wave was always inverted, but apparently, if you're fit, um, like T wave inversion, my you know my guess is you would probably have some form of T wave inversion. Yeah,
0: take, I get there like the sinus bradycardia and, and yeah. uh, the T wave inversion on mine as well.
1: Yep, and that that is that's like the gold standard indicative thing of just being a fit human being, um, having a good high uh, aerobic threshold. Right. But for me and for this you know, genetic lottery is, um, it's also like the gold standard sign for this thing. Um, But I never noticed it. Uh, I had a, you know, a couple of times where like, you know, running with a vest on and doing something like that. Like I'd get lightheaded. I'm like, wow, I really left it all on the track today. So, and that's kind of it. Um, This was my, this was my wake up call. Um, So the first guy who spots me when I went down. Yeah, uh, lucky you're running
0: with a group, at least. I mean, not not guys.
1: I say this, own. John. Like, if I would have been running on the mall in DC, which I've done, you know, hundreds of times, there's a good chance I'd still be there now, like, 11 years later. <laughs> like, n- no, but literally nobody would have gotten to me. Yeah. Um, so, the first guy who spots me was one of the Afghan guards, um, you know, and he calls over a guy uh, named Alex Betts, who was a former 18 Delta um, Special Forces member. And so that guy comes over. And he starts working on me right away he's like wow dude has no pulse like let's start thumping on his chest and then the uh the australian sas guys come by and so they all grab me and they start dragging me up to the medical room um one of the guys swings by the gym grabs the aed off the wall and the batteries are dead um so (laughs) so that's that's not the best thing apparently uh and then they run and get a friend of mine who um was an operator on the hostage rescue team uh, for the FBI, but he was also an EMT intermediate. So I lucked out in that I had five people around me who were all trained in you know, critical trauma care and who all knew about like basic cardiac life support. Um, so they eventually, they actually like breached the locked door to the medical room and got uh, the life pack off the wall and pulled it down and uh, got me shocked. So it took them about from when I went down to when um, they got a pulse back, it was about 12 or 13 minutes.
0: Wow. Um,
1: and uh, luckily they were doing really, really good CPR. They broke a bunch of ribs um, doing it. Um, so I knew- That's good stuff. <laughs> that they are that really putting it all into it. Um, yeah, so, <clears throat> They they worked on me you know they did everything they could um, they had to breathe for me for about an hour and I started breathing again after about yeah you know, 50 some odd minutes uh, they basically commandeered a vehicle drove me down to one of the uh, like at the Kabul airport drove me down and uh, and you know I got set up at a French hospital um, about five days are fuzzy you know a day or so beforehand and everything I just told you is a recollection of like snippets you know like Mm -hmm. somebody tore out every third page of a book Um, and then everything else is is what these guys have told me you know a couple of funny things with it i remember um they had put in a nasogastric tube so that's for those who aren't familiar it's uh it's a tube that's about eh, three feet long um, of thin pliable plastic that goes in your nose and into your stomach Um, so when I woke up, that's what was happening is they were pulling the nasogastric tube out, which was like, to me, it was like the worst kids clown show I've ever seen. I had some doctor standing over me, (laughs) pulling out three feet of tubing from my nose. Um, and then I, you know, I lost track of a couple of days. I had a pretty good, uh, in country beard at that point, somebody brought me a clippers and let me shave my beard. And, uh, and then I woke up and I'm like oh, that doesn't feel right. Like, (laughs) guys, how many months have I been out? They're like, no, dude, it's been like three days. Um, And it was a French hospital and nobody knew that I had uh, lived in Switzerland or that I spoke French. And so when I woke up, I started, you know, conversing with the nurses and the doctors in French and they thought I had like some phenomenon moment. Like, you know, (laughs) dudes were asking me if I could play the piano now or if there is something else to it. So, yeah, so that's uh, that was the cardiac arrest. And then um, I got medevaced uh, through the UK back to the United States. Um, and that's when uh, they put in what's called an ICD. So it's um, it sits like underneath my pack. It is a device that's um, you know about sort of yay big. And uh, it's got a lead that goes into my heart and it does nothing. Um, Unless it needs to, and then Mm -hmm. it works like uh, it works like an AED, so it shocks you sort of internally. So that was all they did. Uh, Went to Johns Hopkins, and uh, they put that ICD in, and then um, you know it took a year or so, so a year sort of elapsed. So this is October of two thousand nine. A year goes by, and they hadn't fixed the problem. So that same sort of focal spot in my heart that was causing problems was now that the thing was alive and well. It was a kraken that was eating up every bit of electricity it could find. And I hadn't made the switch yet of like, oh my gosh, there's actually something wrong with me that I need to address. So I'd go out and you know go for a run. And then this thing would shock me. Um it literally one time I went out for a run on the mall and I was uh catching my breath right in front of the White House and it shocked me. I'm like, oh God, this sucks. Like <laughs> This sucks. And so then I get to do the, 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 like, in my mind, it was like the forlorn walk of shame back to the office and like, oh, I don't feel so good. I'm going to go home today. Um, you know, and just at oh, this time,
0: things. I'm sorry, this time uh, yeah. you're still with the FBI.
1: Correct. still okay. an agent. And, um, and that, that, that's actually, you know, a little bit of corollary to the story You know, this happens and, um, the FBI is like, well, how did this happen? I'm like, your guess is as good as mine. Yeah. I spent um, about three, now four years fighting with the FBI to have um say that, I, you know, they kept saying, you're not fit for duty, like time to find a desk and to write a desk. Um, John, you froze up there, are you still around? I'm
0: still here, I'm still here. Yep, still here.
1: There you are, I see yep. you, all Sorry. right, we're good. That's That's some of the,
0: that's some of the great benefit of going live (laughs) that people get to see, get to see all the (laughs) mishaps.
1: At least, I mean, normally I freeze in, you know, like that kind of a face. So yours was, it was good, John. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I was still an FBI agent, still hadn't fixed the problem. So I was still having issues. And in that year, the FBI was like, dude, you can't, you're, you're not good. And, and genuinely I was like, yeah, you're probably right. I'm not good. But so now my issue was trying to, to get good and to try and fix what the problem was. So I um went back to Johns Hopkins and this amazing physician comes in and he's like, Hey, I've looked at all your charts and I know how to fix it. I'm like, Yeah, sounds good, Doc. Just do it. Do it. Guy goes in, does a surgery, fixes it. That was 2010, October of 2010. And, you know, touch wood. It's now been what, 10 years and two months, and I have not had. single issue since then nice so that's been great but then as all good government services uh go they wouldn't let that one go so now i start the battle of hey i'm fit for duty i've got johns hopkins who have put me through the entire physical fitness test you know i can demonstrate that i can run a couple of miles i can demonstrate that i can literally like i had to go through uh and talk to the body armor manufacturers and be like and then the device manufacturers and say all right if i get shot in my plate in my vest the concussive force that's going to go into my chest is that going to screw up my device and i had to like get all that laid out and submit that to the fbi and eventually they were like okay you can kind of sort of go back to doing regular work um and that was that was an administrative battle but the part that i really you know, really want to talk to to you about, John, and, and you know, the, the part that I think is sort of appropriate for this one is, like, mentally, I never addressed what had happened. Um, never once. And, you know, it was always like, I was constantly looking at, all right, this is the next step I got to take. And this is the next thing I've got to do in order to get back to where I was. And, um, you know, I was like, I, I want to go back overseas. I want to go back to doing these things. I want my life to be exactly the same way as it was on September 25th of 2009. Not the way it's been since September 26th of 2009. Right. And that that coming to that realization was something that was the best thing uh, that could happen to me of it will never be the same. It's not going to be like you were dead. You have, you know, a very expensive piece of hardware in your chest now and you've had all of these surgeries um you're not the same and so i think the that recognition has been a very hard thing for me to come to and because i failed to recognize that i had a lot of things happen um, in that first year in particular but then in the subsequent years that i think were all post-traumatic stress issues that as they do for everybody, you know, it it becomes this snowball turning into avalanche compounding effect. Um and that that was the part where, you know, I I joke about having my thing shock me in front of the White House. Um, you know, it it shocked me again uh in like when I was helping unload some gear in the back of a van in Utah, right? Just so it's hitting me at these places that were unexpected and during times that I did not think that it would. Yeah. And so what that did for me was that absolutely smashed to pieces that fortress of invul- invulnerability that I had built up for that, you know, a decade prior of of going overseas and doing things or, you know, feeling like I was invincible because of my training it smashed that to pieces. And once those walls came down, once that that invulnerability had been torn apart, that was where everything that i had sort of put to the back recesses of my mind started coming to me. And so, you know, i i got to a point until they fixed the problem and even after they fixed it, i got to a point where i was like borderline agoraphobic simply because I didn't want to go out and yeah. I didn't want to, you know, have, I don't want to go out for a run outside. You know, I, I do it on my treadmill because I'm in the comfort of my own home and I feel safe. in control. There. Yeah. In control. And I didn't want to go out somewhere and have it be something that would happen where it's out of my control, or I'm going to have to be reliant on, you know, John or Jane Q citizen to, to take care of me. Like I felt like that was something that was, I, I just couldn't deal with. So that, sure. I, I mean, that's the exact right thing. It was loss of control and that control that we, while we're overseas, while we're training, while we're in the military, while we're in law enforcement, that control is the one thing that keeps us alive. That sense of control, even in those times that are so chaotic and there's no semblance of control, you've still got your SOPs, you've still got your teammates, you've got your personal training, you've got your gear, you've got comms, you've got all of those things that give you that sense, even if it is just an illusion, (laughs) but that sense of control that you can fall back on. And losing that was, I mean, that was the biggest hit to my psyche I think I've ever taken in my life.
0: I bet. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of the time it is just that, it is just an illusion both in in combat and in life writ large, uh, it is definitely an illusion. Uh, There are definitely other things that have control or can take control at any moment. And it it sounds like you've gotten some mechanisms to deal with that mentally. And that's obviously what we want to talk about. So what are those mechanisms that you've employed to not necessarily gain control, but cope with the feeling that comes with uh, that loss of control?
1: Yeah, uh, So it took a lot. And honestly, John, I was thinking about this this morning. I don't quite know how I got to, um, meditation. I had always thought about meditation. I'd always, you know, tried meditation. Um, before my cardiac arrest, I had gone to, there's a Buddhist temple in, um, in, uh, Northern Virginia in Fairfax. And I had gone there and they do meditations a couple nights a week. And it, you know, it's anybody can walk in, anybody can try and they do walking meditations. Um, they do mantra meditations. And I always really like that. I always felt a, a sense of peace there. And mm-hmm. then that was kind of something that, you know, in, in bouts of boredom overseas, I think I would, you know, read a little bit about it, try a little bit, never really called it a practice um, or anything like that. And then um, when I was at probably my lowest during that first year after my cardiac arrest, uh, I, I read something about the David Lynch Foundation. And David Lynch is a huge benefactor, um, and the foundation helps provide uh, transcendental meditation training to um schools at risk youth prisoners uh, veterans you name it uh, donates a bunch of money and and has some really uh, good programs there so i decided i was just going to go and do it Uh, so i looked up you know a a tm or a transcendental meditation teacher near me and went and did it um it was uh expensive and i was hesitant and i questioned you know every time i got in the car to drive over there Um, but after You know, after the first couple of days, and then when those first couple of days of meditating turned into the first couple of weeks, and then it really did become, you know, from forced effort to habit to practice. When that happened for me, it helped me so incredibly much. Um, You know, I through my physicians and through the the sort of the the fears that I had about the outside world for a while. You know, I they had tried giving me um, you know, they they tried as they do pharmacology for me and it didn't work. Right. I didn't like it. I didn't like feeling dull. Um right. yep. I didn't didn't like any bit of that. And so once I realized that there was a way that I could turn inward and I could find a bit of peace. And you know, TM is is nothing more. I've heard it described as, you know, your brain is a monkey. And that monkey wants to go everywhere. The monkey's going to run around and it's going to find the shiniest thing that it can find. And that's going to move on to the next thing. And all I'm telling that monkey to do when I meditate is I'm just telling that monkey, Hey, look, there's a pole. Climb up that pole, climb down that pole, climb up that pole, climb down that pole. Do that over and over again. And that gives everything else that the monkey could be messing with a chance to settle down. And that's exactly, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what that does for me um, and what it has continued to do for me, even as you know, I've, I've sort of come out of that dip in my life. And I I feel like I'm definitely on a, a, you know, sort of that upward trajectory again in my life. And I feel at peace with everything that I've got, um, and everything that I'm doing, it still gives me a chance to turn down the outside noise and, just take that moment take those 20 minutes you know once or twice a day and just find that peace so that everything else attenuates better once i'm back in the world
0: 100% yeah the the, the i love that analogy with the the monkey and getting that monkey under control by just having it climb yeah. up and down that pole the yeah. the analogy that i always use is is uh, i don't practice tm but i obviously practice meditation but the, the analogy that I always use is just your mind is like a snow globe that has been shaken up and it's like that all day until you give it a chance to settle and you put that snow globe down, all those flakes kind of settle to the bottom and then you can kind of see the image that's in the in the center of that snow globe and that's the important piece. That's what you should be focusing on. That's what your mind and heart should be focusing on in life. So, but I'm, I'm going to start using that monkey on the pole, <laughs> pole yeah. analogy. I like that. So, now you you've got that as a practice you also in in our pre-recordings and some of our chats before you talk about like surviving meal to meal and how you've learned that as a as a method in the military but now you're employing something similar now in life can you describe that and what you mean by that
1: absolutely i mean that was something that um you know officer can school as i'm sure all of your schooling was. Um, and, you know, I've heard plenty of your, your brethren talk about it, but it's like, you know, you can get to breakfast, like you'll get there eventually. And all yeah. you got to do is just finish whatever evolution you're doing right now to get to that next meal. Um, and then there's going to be a whole lot of suck in between breakfast and lunch, but you're going to get there eventually. Um, and so that has been something that I've always looked at. And I think, you know, I. I It didn't quite resonate with me until later on, but you can apply that logic of, hey, I I know that I have one thing that I am happy about or one thing that is a sure fixed point along the road. Whatever comes at me, I know I'm going to get to that point in the road. It might be a while before I get there, but that's what I'm going to. And in the smallest of examples, you know that is your day, right? That's, I'm going to wake up this morning and I slept terribly last night because I have a newborn, but I know that at some point, like I'm gonna have breakfast with my family. And then after that, I'm gonna go to work. Then I'm gonna talk to John for a little bit. Then I'm gonna have lunch. And then I'm gonna do more work. Then I'm gonna deal with my kids. And then, you know, like you can deal with that in your day-to-day life. Right. Um, you can deal with that in the most troubling of times that you have, uh, you know, going through um, a rocky relationship, dealing with death, dealing with sickness. I mean, I've spent plenty of time in hospital beds wired up and bored out of my mind or worried out of my mind. But you get to a point where talk to the nurse for the day and what tests am I having today and when are they scheduled for? And I know that all I've got to do is get to this next test and then we'll wait for the results. And then that is going to lead to whatever comes next. So that mindset of I'm not thinking about what's going to come 10 steps down the road, I got to have that a little bit in my mind, but I'm focused and I'm laser focused on what is that next logical step. And you hear this analogy played out in, you know, 12 step programs, you hear this analogy played out and put one foot in front of the other. I mean, it's just breaking down a monumental problem into its smallest, most solvable digestible parts,
0: right? Yeah, and I love that you you hit the digestible part there at the end. Uh, because yes, we do employ that uh, going through SEAL training out of buds, making it from one evolution to the next, making it from one meal to the next. And we always, we always say, well, how do you eat an elephant? You eat an elephant one bite at a time. If you look at that entire elephant, you're like, there's no way that I could get through that, right? And yeah, it's kind of a disgusting analogy, but but it's definitely uh, uh, appropriate and it, it helps you to break things down. I mean, I, I, I remember even... As I was starting to look at transition out of the military, and I know many people take that transition or retirement, whatever it is, as a a very overwhelming phase. And it is, if you look at it as an entire thing. But when you look at it as little pieces, you're like, hey, today I've got to go to the VA. Today I've got to go, uh, you know, fill out my DD-214 or whatever. You just break it down into small pieces. Eventually you're going to get through that whole thing. And, and you know, then you get to the other side, Uh, just like the marathon, put one foot in front of the other. Yeah, like you said, tons of analogies for the same thing, but breaking it down into small digestible pieces makes it much easier to, to process and get through. So now I understand you're writing a book about your experience and interviewing other people about their experiences with mental challenges or obstacles and how they've overcome them. Let's talk about the book. Tell us about it
1: yeah i mean it look this was a um this was a it it was it started as a whimsical thought i never once thought like i'm gonna write a book like i never planned on writing the great american novel or anything like that um it actually started uh you know i covid started and i have a sister who is uh an er physician um actually out your way and um she was one of the first cases of, of COVID, and she caught it very bad. I mean, it laid her out for um, weeks and, you know, it, it, I think it put her down pretty bad. Um, and so seeing her sort of going through that and struggling with that, particularly like you're in isolation, you're by yourself. Now you're struggling with COVID, um, how, how did she get through that? And she had been uh, a naval aviator before. She had been wow. seer. like she 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 had coping mechanisms in place and then a couple weeks later actually our mother uh passed away from covid um and you know same thing we we had, she had been in a nursing home and it just happened like that and you know we couldn't really do anything about it so that sort of got the wheels turning of like if this is happening to me and you know I, i've come to this point of acceptance and realization in my life and i have sort of mechanisms in place how do other people do it? How do other people do it who have never been through military training, who have never had terrible things happen to them? How can they learn from that? And that you know the thing about resilience is it's built off of experience. You've typically, if you were going to be one of the more resilient human beings in this world, you've had something tough happen to you. You know, oftentimes something terrible happened to you, or you've had the opportunity to have resiliency sort of, uh you know indoctrinated into you through training but now we've got particularly in this country we've got so many people who have had to deal with being locked in getting sick the fear of getting sick losing relatives and not being able to see them having to homeschool your kids when you have forgotten second grade math like you (laughs) name it there are people who are dealing with some pretty terrible things So I started looking at people I had met along the way, who were just amazing people. And one guy stood out in my mind, um, particularly, he's a guy who in 2008, um, he was kidnapped by the Taliban. The guy was, he's incredible. Um, His name's Jerry and he's a reporter. He had gone over and he had been with uh, some very prominent uh, Mujahideen groups during the, the war against the Soviets. Fast forward 25 years later, He's back reporting and he gets kidnapped um, in the tribal areas. Um, so I picked Jerry up on the side of a road in eastern Afghanistan in 2008 and um, did the whole like debriefing of him uh, afterwards. And one of the ones that I'd done was, you know, like the personnel recovery serious school type debriefing of like what got you through it? What were your anchors? What were the things that you would do when you would go into your circle? Um, To help get you through this and help, it helped get him through mock executions. It helped get him through, you know, sickness, uh, abuse, you name it. And although Jerry had been in the military for a hot second when he was younger, um, never gone to serious school, never really had any training that would have helped him, Jerry did a lot of things sort of intuitively. You know, he reflected back on his upbringing, he looked at, things that he had learned along the way to help formulate the way that he was going to deal with his captors, the way that he was going to deal with the people who had taken him hostage. And that was what got him through. And then that was what helped get him through, um, the afterward, you know, what came after his, uh, his captivity. Um, he wrote a fascinating book about it. Uh, it's called captive by Jerry Van Dyke, but now, 12 years later, Jerry and I had a conversation about this, and it was it was really neat to hear his perspective on it. So Jerry and the, the interview that we had kind of got my, you know, wet my appetite for. There are tons of other people out there who have been through uh, incredible things. I just had a conversation with a guy named Omar al Um Omar was 15 years old when the, uh, you know, the, the Arab Spring was happening in Syria. Um, he attended one protest and at the age of 15, he was rounded up by the secret police and chucked into this prison in Syria, in Damascus, uh, called Said Naya, which is like, it's the torture factory, um, held there for three years, three years and, uh, was tortured every single day, um, watched family. He watched, um, three cousins die. Um, and watched pretty much every single person around him die. Uh, Eventually got out, and now he is um, one of the biggest advocates, you know, obviously against the regime. And he has helped formulate um, the uh, Caesar Act that was um, put in place by the administration, which put sanctions on uh, the Syrian regime. Um, I interviewed a girl who was kidnapped at the age of 13 and had her abuse live streamed and oh gosh yeah and then um by the age of 15 she was testifying she was uh, saved a couple of uh like a week or so later um by the age of 15 she was testifying before congress and now in 12 states she has laws passed for her that provide funding to countering human trafficking task forces so nice. you know there are these people who have had no training no experience and they've managed to get through so what i'm doing is trying to elicit from them what it was for them, and who they've become now. So what anchors did they have? Um, what helped them get through it? And then what are they doing with their newfound look on life? You know, the people talk about the new normal now. like what is the new normal for somebody who's been through something like that? So to me, John, this is very much a a personal project because I'm trying to look at my journey. And sort of weave it through their stories what am i learning from that and what parallels can i have along the way nothing that i went through is anywhere near what they went through but what can i learn as you know as me looking at that but then what can we impart to other people so right my goal is that you know there's something that's going to be in this book that resonates with anyone if it's somebody who's trapped in a terrible relationship somebody who's you know riddled with terminal disease, um, you know, there's got to be something there that they can, that they can latch onto and might just help them along the way. And I've, you know, had some really good luck in, I talked with um, Dr. Stephen Southwick, who um, actually did a lot with Naval Special Warfare, but did a lot with SEER schools on resiliency and how do you train resiliency. He does a lot of work with the VA still. Um, this man is going through, you know, his second round of cancer right now. Um, and he is, you know, the resiliency that he has learned and he imparts upon people, he's sharing that with this book as well. So my hope is it helps somebody. That's all I care about. It's not a, this isn't a vanity project. It's a, a hope to help.
0: Well, it sounds like a phenomenal work. And I'm sure, you know, as you go through the writing and as you interview these different people, the, the the track will morph like what you had intended the book to be and what it ends up being either way it's going to end up being something amazing but it sounds like you've interviewed some incredible people that have some incredible stories and and i'm sure some people will many people will want to read it and learn from their stories how they overcame those uh, incredible seemingly insurmountable odds uh and now they're doing such good things that's uh that's fantastic well killian um awesome to talk with you thus far uh, we're coming to the end of the show is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't addressed thus far
1: that's a good question John I should have thought about that one ahead of time uh, <laughs> yeah I I think the biggest thing for me that I've realized out of all of this is it's about like life is about empathy and so now I'm I have nothing to do with anything that that I used to do um, I'm it, you know in business. And I have a day job and that day job gives me the opportunity to um, work with some pretty amazing people from around the globe. But what I've realized is, you know, if I think if I would have been more vocal about what I was going through when I was going through it, I would have found that there are people, people are hardwired to have empathetic conversations with you. Not everybody is and not everybody's good at it but I should have found somebody earlier to have a conversation with that could have possibly helped nudge me along a little bit earlier. Don't get me wrong. There were people with whom I had conversations and who have helped along the way as there were for everybody. Um, But that has made me realize that like life is truly about being empathetic with every single thing that you do, finding a way to, and I love the expression, you know, get in the boat with the person because that person You know, if you can show that you're in the boat with them, whether it's, you know, the most calm, placid seas or whether you're, you know, riding 30 foot waves with them, you're in the boat with that person and you're along for the ride and they know that you're there for them. Um, I think that's the most important thing that I've taken away from this is, is going forward. And I encourage everybody to do that. Like you may be having the worst day of your life, but somebody else is probably having a worse one. So figure out what is driving you, what is ailing you for the day. If you need help, ask for it. But also realize that, you know, you're not the only one who's suffering right now. So share. And I guarantee you you're gonna find somebody who's willing to share with you and somebody who's willing to get in that boat with you and ride those waves.
0: I love it. And and what more appropriate time than right now in in what the the country and, and the world. Is facing as, as a as a global pandemic, and uh, you know, I think everybody needs to get in somebody else's boat and be empathetic to what what it is they're going through, and then share what it is they're personally going through. I mean, that's that's what that's a sign personally to me. I think that's a sign of strength uh, if you can share what it is you're going through, and then maybe other uh, people can benefit from from listening. So Killian, uh, this has been awesome. If if our listeners wanted to reach out to you just to find out more about you, or if they have a story that they wanted to share as part of the book, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you?
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, not everybody's on LinkedIn. Obviously, people might be watching here, but um, it, it's pretty simple. You know, it's the book is Reflections on Resilience, and it's Killian at Reflections on Resilience, K I L L I A N, and Reflections on Resilience, all one word. Um, anytime, I mean, truly. I, there are a million incredible stories out there. I can't feature them all, but I want to hear them all because I think that's going to help shape, um, you know, the way that I can pass these stories along to people. So please reach out. And, and I mean that for any of, any of the folks who tune into you and, and really anybody who hears this later on, like reach out, I'm happy to make the time. I will make the time, um, if I can ever be of any help.
0: Awesome. Well, I'll make sure that those links are shared in the uh, in the podcast notes when this airs via podcast, but it is live here on LinkedIn right now. And I'll make sure that these uh, links are in the comments on on LinkedIn later today. Uh, Killian, been awesome, man. Uh, You've got a heck of a story. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing it with us and like your your goal with your book and interviewing people and sharing their stories. Well, that's similar goal to what we have with this podcast and i appreciate your sharing your story because it is going to resonate with someone listening or watching today or listening later uh i, I think your sharing your story is vital to, to helping someone else out so thanks very much for your time man I, I sincerely appreciate it
1: thanks john thanks for everything
0: all right and until we talk again stay safe stay healthy and happy holidays to you and you we hope you've enjoyed today's episode of veterans path podcast Please follow us on social media and think about sharing your story with us there and potentially on the show. Together, we can make mental health a priority, improving and saving lives.